Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Stonemasons. Strong, beautiful building. Fine office there, apartments upstairs, doctor's office there. A sturdy building. Who is the doctor? Uh, Dr. Cummings, Dr. Grishik, and. Uh, what you're currently listening to is an old VHS tape that I found in a chest from my deceased grandfather, Fjordchuk Keller. This tape is of him and his friend, Frank Latuda, who is since deceased, walking through all of the coal camps up in Spring Canyon, Utah, just outside of Helbert, Utah, on the eastern side of the state, between Provo and Grand Junction, Colorado. And Frank used to own the Liberty Fuel Company in Spring Canyon, Utah. And they're going through each individual coal camp. And they're talking about who lived there, trying to preserve the memory of these ghost towns that were up the canyon that for me as a kid were just always there. You came here when, Frank? 1936. When they decided to make this video, they wanted to preserve history that was since being forgotten. So when I found this tape, I thought it would be a good time to talk about coal, energy, and how it affected the livelihood of a small town, but not just that small town, but the United States as a whole. So we're going to make some phone calls and we're going to listen to this tape and we're going to see where it takes us. Prototype Podcast, and I'm your host, Coulter Wilson. Stick with me while we talk about coal and the history of Carbon County, Utah. This is the Prototype. Good morning. Hey, Mom. How are you? I'm good. Awesome. Uh, I'm just calling you real quick because uh, I wanted to ask you some questions. I had that tape that I found in Grandpa's cedar chest that you gave me. And yeah. you you remember him making it, right? Right. Could could you tell me about a little bit about what was going on with him and Frank and, and why they decided to make that tape? Okay, Frank and, and my dad were really good friends, and Dick Schultz, he was another one of their buddies. And Frank and the Schultz boys, Hal and Dick, they each owned a mine up Spring Canyon uh, in the past, but all of that had gone away, and our, the mining camps were gone. So Graham's and Frank Latuda decided they needed to capture a little bit of the history of what went on up there before they were both unable to do it anymore. So they went for a ride up Spring Canyon and stopped at each one of the camp towns and talked a little bit about what was going on up there and from the past, from a different perspective of 
what it is now that took it back to wilderness, basically. Yeah, and do you do you know anybody that lived up there at all? Like when you were a kid, what was it like? Okay, my aunt and uncle lived up there. My aunt Lena, she was a sister to my dad. She lived up there, and we would go visit. They all lived in a row in these little camp houses, and they were uh, two bedroom. None of them were very big, and they were owned by the the mining companies. And my aunt Lena lived in uh, Spring Canyon uh, with her husband. And we would go off and they had a couple kids and the kids would play and the adults would visit and have coffee. And people used to visit a lot back in those days. They would come to your house and you would have coffee and pastry or whatever you had. You always had to eat. That was part of the tradition. So we would go to Aunt Lena and Uncle Mario's and... uh, one of the things that always stuck in my mind is they would go down to Briner Service Station at the end of Briner Street and fill up these big old-fashioned, um, they were milk containers that used, you know, the old people, old-fashioned milk containers. They held about five gallons, and they would go down and fill those up with water from the faucet in Helper. The reason for that is that the water from... Um, Spring Canyon, you could use it to wash dishes with and things like that, but you couldn't use it to drink. So this was their drinking water. And I never understood why they couldn't drink it because it came from the springs that are up there. Unless, of course, it was contaminated by chemicals from the coal mines. That's the only thing I can figure out. His name. You got to say the name. Yeah, George Schultz and his family. Yeah. And then the mine foreman, the home was over here, where the, where we see the remnants of the building. Homes for the miners, the Liberty Fuel Company, and where you see the pipe sticking out of the ground is where Chuck Keller bought his home from the Liberty Fuel Company, transported it to Helper, and made a beautiful home out of it. Right here's where it used to sit. Up the can. Oh, no. We don't want to go up there. The portal there is off. Yeah, I do. He moved it from Standardville. And it was one of those traditions, and I remember watching them move it down. And it would come down through Spring Canyon, and then they... It was on a big truck, and there were guys on top of it that would lift up the wires to bring it underneath the telephone wires or electrical wires. But they weren't like they are now where you're going to die, you know? So it was it was kind of, I don't know how they did it, but they brought it down the canyon. My dad went up, and in those days, people built their own homes. And it took my dad two years to get our house ready. But he poured the foundation and everything, and we have a had a big old coal stove that is in the basement. It's still there today, and it'll never come out of there because he put it in there before they put the house on top of the basement. And you know, it's one of those old monarch ones that they used to bake bread in. All makes the best bread, and you can can on them. Awesome stove. But anyway, so they did that. Then he brought the house down, and they set it on the foundation. And then he went from there to sheetrocking all of the walls and, and putting it all in. And in retrospect, I've talked to my sister and my brother about the fact that he would have probably been better off tearing it down and just using the wood to rebuild the house because you had to stick to the floor plan of whatever house you bought up in Spring Canyon, Standardville, wherever you bought it. And it was not uncommon. Anyone could buy a house and bring it down if they wanted to or tear it down and bring it down in pieces, which a lot of them did that. So a lot of houses in Helper are built from the remnants of Spring Canyon, Standardville, Latuda, Mutual, all those little towns.
spray. It's on now, you've got to say it all over again. Well, well we're on the road to the Vulcan Fuel Company. The old Lone Pine Coal Company, the name was later changed to Vulcan Fuel. It was owned and operated by Mike Gamber, Dick Schultz, and I was also a partner. The home of one Bolshevik Mike Skrushek, an old bachelor, Southern European, who lived under the rock. His skin was just like parchment, or just like jerky from the smoke. He was literally smoked. He lived there for many years, and Dick, Dick and Schultz and Mike Gamber used to furnish his coal. He was a pleasant old gentleman. How he got his name Bolshevik Mike, I'll never know, but he was quite a character. And that was his residence. Tim? Yeah, I got you. Closed down over probably a 10 year period, and that was because people transitioned from coal to gas heat. That was the big deal. And only the local coal miners still kept the coal furnaces because we had our coal furnace for a really long time after most people had converted to gas. And the advantages of gas were that it was cleaner. When we had a coal furnace, you had to go put the slack in the hopper and then there was a worm that fed it into the firebox and you had to take the clinkers out and you put them in a bucket and then you took them outside and put them in the garbage or disposed of them. How I don't remember how we disposed of them, but we did. And uh, you had to do that every day. And you had to go check the furnace and make sure that all those things were done daily. Well, gas was maintenance free. You didn't have to do any of that. Plus, they could convert your cold furnace to a gas furnace without taking it out. Somehow, they figured out how to do that. So most of the people eventually converted to gas. And coal was only used on industrial levels. I believe that Helper Junior High was one of the last places that converted from coal to gas. Porter of the Western Coal Company. Then... Then the second portal, and where we see the steel top, is the fan house, or fan return for air. Then, then, then it was worked out, and uh, they moved up, and all of this was bulldozed by Chuck Keller. He bulldozed the openings, and then he, he built a pond up there for water storage up behind the big tree. This work was all done by Bulldozer at the hands of Mr. Fiore Chuck Keller. Pleasure to introduce to you Mr. Fiore Chuck Keller, President and Director of Keller Latuta Productions Incorporated. It was through the vision and insistence of Mr. Keller that this film is being made for posterity. And this is behind him is he's at the doorway of the machine shop where he spent many an hour working with the Western Coal Company. Huh? <laughs> Push the red orange button. I want to stop. Yeah. Push it again. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline.
kept all of his records and did all of his work, the footwork. Home of Harry Mankus, who now resides in Price. He worked in the mine for Western, for the Schultzes. This is the last house up the canyon, too. Well built. Back to nature. Back to nature. She takes control. She's still the boss. Said that was the last house. And welcome back to the prototype. I think it's a good time right now to dive a little bit more into my personal journey with Spring Canyon. You have to understand, I grew up at the mouth of Spring Canyon. I moved there in 1980 from Kenilworth, which was a coal mining town outside of Helper. It was an old company town. I lived there till I was three. My mom and dad got a divorce. And my mom bought a house just at the mouth of Spring Canyon. When we were kids, we used to play in what was called the Wash, which was just a little creek that came, it was spring-fed from up in the canyon. The reason it was called Spring Canyon. And we would play in this little creek. And I remember just being a small kid, like five or six years old, and we were throwing rocks into the river. And I hit my little brother in the back of the head with a rock. And he cried and ran away from me and went home to his mom, as any kid should. And by the time he had gotten home, he was bleeding really bad in the head. And my mom had to rush him to the hospital and get stitches. And all growing up through the 80s, from being a kid into being a teenager, we'd go up and see all of the old coal camps and the ruins that were up there. They're just a part of daily life. Go hiking near our house, and you'd run into an old abandoned coal mine, or you'd run into the foundation of an old house. A lot of it was torn down to try to keep people safe, and there were obviously some ruins that were still up there. I moved away in the mid-90s, and a couple of years after I had moved away, I got pulled back to the canyon because one of my best friends when I was a kid was rock climbing with his family and somehow was rappelling with a bad knot, and the knot slipped, and he fell to his death. And when I came back to town, it was the first time in my young adulthood where me, my brother, and all of our childhood friends that we grew up with in Spring Canyon had to carry our first friend to his grave. It was a real poignant moment in my life. Heck. The cop that harassed us in high school and gave us curfew tickets, he was there, just as busted up as we were. So the canyon has affected my life, but it's affected the life of countless others. And so this is why I've taken the time to really dive into its history and why those ruins are there but also just the town I grew up in and the economy that is the reason why we all live there and have since moved away. A lot of it's geared around coal mining in its earliest days, building into unions and people being able to have a job where they could support a wife and a family probably thinking about a job that was considered a, a crappy job up until that point. But people were proud. They were proud to be a member of the union. They were proud to live there. They were proud to support their family. And then from the 60s into the 70s and into the 80s, you could do that. But then things changed in the 90s. 
coal mining jobs just weren't there like they used to be. And people moved to different forms of energy. When I graduated high school, some kids went off to college. Some people moved to cities like me. Other people stayed, worked in the mines. Things changed. They either moved to other energy jobs throughout the country, or they've really started just working in natural gas, which is what's really changed the coal economy these days. But I think we need to talk about the history of not only Spring Canyon, but Helper. And I think we also need to talk about the history of unions and what they contributed not only to this area of Southeast Utah, but really to the country as a whole. So I guess we're going to have to make some phone calls. Hello, your call cannot be taken at the moment, so please leave your message after the tone. Hi, this is a message for Christian Wright. I'm calling because you wrote the book Carbon County Miners for Democracy in Utah in the West. I'd like to talk to you a bit about unions and how they affected Carbon County. Give me a call back. You know, it's really interesting how these industries work. Like, before the coal camps really existed and they started to exist, there was this really optimistic boosterism in all the local papers. And it was like, this is going to be great. This will bring jobs to our state. We'll make money. It'll be wonderful. And then what starts to happen is the social reality starts to emerge, which is uh, you've got these largely immigrant workforces who are not necessarily treated as equal citizens. You've got high rates of accidents happening. You've got not very safe conditions and you've got people who raise their hand and ask questions and they disappear so the sort of latent struggles that maybe are easier to relate to today were like you know you mentioned you work in restaurants i worked in restaurants forever like 10 years like there's things you see that are wrong and there's people being treated wrong and you see it every day and maybe Sometimes you kind of like complain about it with coworkers after work, but you have like no sense of of actually being able to change it. Like, is there a power that we actually have to change this or is there any kind of like law or government agency that can help us? And I think today we're sort of searching for those answers. And that's where the world of coal field unions came from. The sort of union story in Utah coal in the 1930s is really interesting because it gets to the heart of those questions of like, where do labor movements come from? How can they be rebuilt? And what's really interesting about history is like, there's no one way to do it. There's no one person who's like, I have the right idea and I'm gonna do this. But there's different groups of people who are pushed by different circumstances to start experimenting with things. So the, the basic story is what happens in 1933, the union uh, comes in amid great contention and the official version of the story you might hear gets kind of glossed over in the timeline you'll hear people say well in 1933 you know frederick roosevelt signs the national industrial recovery act section 7a gives unions the right to exist uh and the union organizers go through the heartland and say your president wants you to join a union and everyone joins the union and it's great what's really interesting about utah coal miners is the organization drives all happen in the spring and early summer before the National Industrial Recovery Act is signed. The first union contract actually signed in 1933 is at the Mutual Coal Mine up Spring Canyon. And who's doing it is sort of emblematic of the early union organizing efforts where you don't have big well-funded unions, you've got scrappy groups of people um, you know, this is applicable to like the United Auto Workers in Detroit and Michigan was like just tiny numbers of people before 1937. And a lot of times there's debates about the role of radicals in history and, and the role of the Communist Party in the American labor movement. But what is to their credit worth noting is that the people who were gravitating to communist and socialist politics 
were very idealistic and they were driven by strong senses of moral indignation that the world was fundamentally wrong and fundamentally upside down and they were the kind of people who would do things like go to Alabama and organize sharecroppers and know that they might be beaten up for it. And here in Utah, we had a, a split within the United Mine Workers of America in the late 20s, something called the National Miners Union emerged out of the left of coal mining union folk, and it was led by the Communist Party. So they actually uh, get a bit of a hearing with these workforces. Um, it's very uneven. Some coal camps might have maybe more guys from somewhere in Eastern Europe who have lived through or have family members who lived through the, the revolutionary period of the end of World War One and are sort of sympathetic to socialist ideas. And then maybe other coal camps might have more like American citizens, more Mormon uh, ideologies, maybe a little bit less familiarity with those politics. So right there in Mutual, in Spring Canyon, in the National Suites Consumers area, the National Miners Union gets a hearing and people say, even if they're not themselves radical, well, look, you know, these guys are, are trying to do something. The United Mine Workers of America was here in the, in the 20s. There was a big strike in 1922. It failed. They disappeared. So let's give these other guys a chance. And, you know, they're not advocating for, like, super duper radical demands. They're saying, hey, could we have the right to elect our own Czech weighmen so we know that the coal we mine is being weighed correctly? And could we move out of the company town if we wanted to? and these very basic rights. So there's this cool picture that's in the book, uh, the Mutual Store, which is one of like the best, most accessible ruins in Spring Canyon today, was one of the few privately owned spaces within this six mile stretch of like six company towns where you can't really hang out anywhere that's not under the, the watch of the company, so to speak. In the rear view of the old Mutual Store, Pavignano Store. Well built, extremely well built. Yes. Now we're looking at the old Pavignano store, mutual store. That rock, that building was was built by uh, Mr. Pavignano and some of his countrymen. And it, look, look at the work, look how square, every stone fits perfectly. And Mr. Pavignano and his family, he re, that's where Albert, one of our fishing, good fishing friends, and also who worked with Hal and uh, I mean worked with with Dick and Chuck uh, lived was born and raised here. Now, no more mutual. How about all the poker parties they had there? Oh, yeah, they the big dance hall. Yeah, yeah they had that the dances there. They had a, a beer parlor in the in the rear. The butcher shop. And the butcher shop. Left on the, the store on the side. front, this side. Yeah, and there's where they stored all the groceries. Yes, and then both. Two floors, huh? Well, three with the bottom. 18th, 1926. Uh, we, we wonder if that's when the building was put up, or just the concrete base. Uh, well, that we'll know. And I thought the building was older than that. Of course, that's pretty old, 1926. That's a tribute, tribute to the old stonemasons. How even the walls? Not it's not off a fraction of an inch. Tremendous ability those old times were put there in case they wanted to enlarge the building later later on, and then they could tie into them to support the additional structure. But conditions were such that that was not necessary. When the coal business was shot, Mutual was shot, as were all these coal camps. Where things get in some ways contentious and polarizing, but also ultimately successful, is that the United Mine Workers of America, which is run by John L. Lewis, who personally identifies as a Republican, who's sort of allied to the New Deal emerging consensus, 
he's able to say, hey, I'm going to send organizers into Utah and they're going to be able to sit down with these coal companies and be like, look, you don't want all your workers to join the Communist Union. You should sign a contract with us because we believe in the American flag and we're moderates and we don't even want strikes. We're going to negotiate good contracts without strikes. So that sort of political spectrum existing of, of the radical left pushing things far in one direction, sticking their necks out when nobody else believes it's possible. And then the more moderates also being able to say, well, well, here's here's a space you can go if you're a coal company owner and you believe in capitalism and you want to retain your rights, but you're kind of acknowledging that things aren't working very well in the economy. Here's a space you can go. Mining accidents. When there was a mining accident, it affected the whole community. It wasn't just the families that were involved in it, because the community was small and they came from, you know, different areas. There was a coal mine up uh, Martin, and it was owned by Domenis. It was Domenis Coal Mine, and it um, had, they had a mine explosion. And the whole community went up to that area and waited for them to bring the miners out. Just something that you could visualize. Um, even today, you could visualize all the old timers standing around the mines, you know, waiting for them to come out. And there were survivors. I can't remember the details, but I know that Grant Babcock was one of the survivors. And his wife, Lorraine Babcock, told me that she was standing outside the mine when they brought him out. And she says he was covered in coal dust and he had been crying in the mine out of fear and being buried alive down there. And she says it was almost like there were trenches in his skin. And she will never forget that. The day he walked out of that coal mine, he never went back and said, I'm not doing that again. I don't care if we starve to death. I will not be buried under a mountain of coal again. Okay, my name is Mike uh, Delpez. Uh, I'm an international vice president for United Mine Workers of America. My territory, as we call it, or district, is basically the Western United States. We have to make sure that mine don't catch on fire because coal dust is like gunpowder. You know, gunpowder, we hit a little primer and it explodes and it shoots a bullet. Well, this is the same thing. Gold, coal dust is as flammable and explosive as gunpowder. Yeah, so there's uh, the nature of a lot of jobs, and especially coal, is that you're trying to make money. But if you're trying to do safe things, that might mean you got to hire more people. That might mean you got to take a little longer before you start actually getting the coal to make sure the mine is timbered correctly. Uh, you might have to maintain your equipment a bit better. And coal is an industry that's always been characterized by great economies of scale and often periods of overcapacity. So if you're the mine owner and you're competing with all these other mines to get contracts and your margins of profit are very, very thin, if the coal miners say, you know what, this isn't safe, could we do X, Y, and Z to make it better? You're going to be hesitant to embrace that. You know, even if you're you're not like a Batman villain, like, yes, there were great villains in the coal employer history, but there were also people who were not that stereotype, but they also wanted to make money. Uh, now, the experience is very different if you're not the guy looking at the balance sheet, but you're the guy who's working underground. And you've got these memories like you described of like when we had to carry out so-and-so who broke his arm last week. Or, I mean, if you read uh, the list of injuries in, in coal mining, uh, there's now a memorial in Price. There's over a thousand coal miners in Utah who've died since mine began in 1875, whose names are on it. But if you go and you search online, you find like the list that Frank Markusek and Dennis Ardahane put together. It lists like how people died and it's gruesome. It'd be like, uh, oh, there's these haulage uh, like ore carts that ride on rails. And sometimes uh, one kind of runs away or there's an accident or the machine that's carrying it breaks and people get like smashed against the wall or people get electrocuted or people fall off things and it's gruesome. So 
you know, now you've seen that and you've helped carry some of those people out of the mine and you're worried about that yourself. What the miners union is able to do, uh, one of the most fundamentally awesome things about it, which becomes very contentious and the owners go through great lengths to circumscribe is there's this concept of mine committees where if you're working and something is unsafe, you've got this elected body of three guys who are working on every shift and you can go up to one of them and be like, hey man, this thing is really unsafe. Can we fix this? And that person can go to the foreman or, or the superintendent or whoever and be like, hey, we really got to fix this. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's always going to get fixed immediately, but it means that now instead of being told to kind of like shut up or, or man up or whatever, um, you're listened to. And it also means that even though the, the contract language that John L. Lewis is, uh, is all about, really doesn't want any kind of work disturbances. There are, are some actual work disturbances and many more threats. So all of a sudden, there's this concept of what you could call industrial democracy forming, where we can have a conversation about this stuff. Uh, there's black lungs. So in coal, when you're pulverizing it, grinding it, it has tiny, tiny little particles of coal. What coal does, unlike a whole lot of other uh, ergonomic type products, is it attaches to your lungs in some people. Some people are fortunate it doesn't. It's metabolism. And so what it does is the finest little particles that you can't, you know, that you're breathing up through your respiratory system, your mouth and your nose, will eventually get into your lungs. It's just typical respiratory. That's how our respiratory system works. And some people, it attaches to your lungs. What that does is it discloses off your, your lungs where you cannot breathe anymore. Uh, the, you, you cannot get the proper oxygen through your, you know, your lungs to allow you to function. So therefore, you start losing functions of your body. You can't breathe any longer. You can't walk because your blood flow isn't the same as it was. And that is black lung. Now, we in the uh, 70s, we demanded, we had marches and uh, in Washington, D.C. We got federal black lung laws that said, Mr. Coal Company, if you give because we're mining you coal and you're making all this money, you gotta, if we get black lung and we become disabled, you gotta pay us. This is part, part of the, the mutual coal company property and uh, where you see all the junk was where several people lived. It wasn't very appetizing. And then up, up above is, is where the tipples were behind, the, behind this tree, these trees. We'll, we'll take them up there. Yeah, and coal from a Western Fuel, Western Coal Mining Company, Schultz's mine, and they would dump the coal there, and then that tipple was across on this. And then up on the mountain was a little Standard Coal Company, and they shared uh, they shared the tipple tipple facilities with well, adjoining tipples with uh, Mutual Coal Company. Right. But uh, caught on fire and burned and continues to burn to this day. And I think I told you that my grandfather, who I never met, my mother was uh, five years old when he died. He died in the Castlegate mine explosion, 1924. And 172 miners died in that accident. And it was an explosion that it blew equipment, bodies, everything out of the portal of the mine, clear across the road. And then when they thought it was just about done, it blew again. So it was big. Yeah, there are some of those moments, like the, the two big ones you hear about, you know, all the time, all the books of our local history kind of go into is like, there's a May 1st, 1900 mine explosion at the Winter Quarters mine. And they don't even know exactly how many people they died because the explosion blew up the house that had like the paperwork in it of like who was at work that day. And this was like a huge workforce. People were coming and going. Uh, a lot of the people who'd be working there spoke different languages and people who managed the mine, but about 200 people died. And then the next thing that happens is that the March uh, 1924 Castlegate explosion is, is super traumatic. It, it kills 173 people, but one of the 
uniquely challenging and difficult hard things about it is that the coal mines like boomed in World War One, and since 1920 they were declining. So the guys who kept their jobs tended to be the guys who had like families. Because the, the mine superintendent would be like, all right, look, man, you're single, you're a strong young guy, you can go find another job. I'm gonna give the job to this other guy who's got like the five kids, okay? And everyone sort of agreed, all right, that's probably the right thing to do. Well, that really left an imprint because all those families had these experiences of like trying to identify their husband by his burnt clothing or something. It was horrible. Um, however, that was sort of at a time when the industry was at like its low, like sort of a, a lull in production and, and employment security. There wasn't like an immediate, okay, we're going to go on strike and we're going to fix this kind of reaction. But what did happen is people internalized that and they kept that with them. And then later in the early 30s, when things began to change, when new opportunities uh, to try and articulate uh, a union example emerged, people sort of remember that and said, hey, remember what happened, man? Like, this is unsafe. Uh, just before that, in 1930, there was an explosion. I believe the Standardville mine that killed about 30 people. So that was probably in more recent memory. Uh, right. 1936, when I first came to Utah, there were 11 or 12 mines up, up this Spring Canyon. Peerless, Spring Canyon, Rains, Maple Creek, Latuda, uh, Standardville, Mutual, Little Standard, Western, Day Mine, and one or two other small mines. Little Standard, and then another small wagon mine. I can't recall the name of the man who operated it. And then let me just try to simplify it, you know, as far as unions in this country. You know, the, this is not complicated. Uh, you know, a lot of people try to outthink things. But, you know, just thinking on a union standpoint, we, a union, the union, any union, and, and I'm very familiar with the United Mine Workers Union, uh, uh, because, you know, United Mine Workers Union, uh, you know, back particularly in the 30s and the 40s, we made, most people don't know this, but we formed the United Steelworkers Union. We formed the United Auto Workers Union. We formed the United Rubber Workers Union. And... Most of the unions in this company come off of the backs of United Mine Workers. You know, uh, our president then went to Detroit and did a sit-down strike because them auto workers back then were being treated like slaves. That's where all the unions virtually got formed is from us. And, and, and the union theory is just very simple. It, you know, don't complicate it. It's when a corporation hires us, the working people, you know, they like to abuse us, and they like to pay us the least that they can so they can make more money. But we set the standard of living for everybody. Again, paid holidays. The employers didn't, that just didn't drop out of the sky. We set the standard of living for people to get health care. Employers don't want to give us health care. They know they have to because some crazy bunch of people said, we demand good working conditions and we demand you take care of me and my family. Really one of the high points of, uh, you know, the coal miner's power in the 20th century, as soon as World War One ends, there's like a huge national strike every year for five years. And, you know, the big reason besides like the high wage, why everyone is so eager to talk about the coal mining jobs and can we bring them back and can we defend them is because the coal mining jobs because of those strikes got pensions and health care for your whole family and that because of american politics was unlike western europe where after world war ii there were these big welfare states passed american politics meant okay we're gonna have these sort of like single industry healthcare plans or maybe these employer-based healthcare plans. A lot of people today talking about universal healthcare point out the problems with that, which are valid. But as far as mining coals goes, you know, after 1946, you're going to have a pension. You're going to have a doctor who wasn't just like the company town doctor that you had to go to. You couldn't get a second opinion. You'd have something that you had a bit more control over. And that's huge. I mean, if there was like 500,000 people mining coal in 1947, and maybe that declined to about 120,000 people mining coal by 1968. It went up to almost 200,000 people by 1980 before it went down again. 
those are the people working. So then add to that number like their spouse and all their kids. So this was like one of the biggest steps forward in a major industry and a huge segment of American working people in our quality of life. And that, you know, did come out of not necessarily just like one big disaster, but I think the experience of, of the speed up, of the, the declining safety records of World War II, and then things like the, the sunny side explosion were kind of poignant and then stuck with people. And they said, you know what, like we can't let that keep happening. Uh, you know, so what? If we break the contract, if I get yelled at by whoever, so what? I don't care. And that's where big changes happen. I still think there's going to be a, a, a use for coal. Nothing, nothing like it ever has been. Uh, I don't know that it's going to grow much more than what it is today, unless we figure out a way to clean it, uh, the emissions. Uh, and then there's all kind of good, interesting things out there. But I mean, is it going to come here pretty quick? I don't think so. Here in our area, you know, particularly in Utah, where you came from, and this area that we're speaking about, all of the, I call it the easy coal, it's all gone. We've been mining coal here for over a hundred years. You know, 130 or so, 40, 50 years. Right here where I'm sitting. Guess what? When, when, when you go do something, you usually get the easy stuff because you can make a lot of money. That's what these companies all did around here. What is left here now? That's the tough coal. It's going to take you a ton of money to get it from the inside of that mine to the outside of the mine because of the, the distance. Then once you get it out of here, who the hell's going to buy it? You've got to have a buyer for your product, whether it be coal or tomatoes. And if you don't have a buyer on the other end of it, there's no sense growing a tomato or mining a ton of coal. And that's where we are today. Uh, you know, nobody's buying this stuff. Uh, you know, there, there, was, there was myths put out about the coal industry is going to be re-energized for the last four years and all the coal miners are going back to work and all that. And that was the biggest farce and lie that anybody could have come out of their mouth. And But it was said 150,000 times, and it's still being said today to some degree, and it's all a lie. The low rod point for the range mine, which we just uh, photographed a moment or two ago, the coal was struck from here down to the rain, rain tipple for preparation, but it was uh, it was uh, too expensive, and ultimately they they uh, hauled the coal by motors through the mine, much cheaper. But that's quite a quite an installation there. But you had to try everything in those days in order to succeed, stay alive. But ultimately, gas and oil defeated us. Hold the button. No, yeah, okay. Chuck Keller is holding a, a pick from the head of an old pick that he probably used when they excavated the opening to the western tipple, to the western mine. It's rusted, but it's a, that's a souvenir, uh, a memento of a beautiful past, and a sad past. There's Mr. Keller, president and director of the Cala Latuda Film Productions Incorporated. 1040. I'd like to thank Christian Wright for taking the time to have a conversation with me about unions. You can find his book on Amazon, and I'll have a link to it in the show notes. I'd like to thank Mike Delpaz for taking the time to have a conversation with me on very short notice. It was a wonderful conversation to learn about unions. There was so much more to it, honestly, that I just couldn't put into the show. Thank you, Mike. I'd like to also thank my mom for taking the time for having a conversation with me about my family's past. And last, I'd like to thank you, the listener. It's because of you that this entire show is possible. Now, I know I don't put it out that often, but when I do, I put a lot of work and effort into it. So thank you for listening. And I appreciate you for listening. Well, that's it for the prototype. Like and subscribe. And next time there's an episode, you'll get a push on your phone. 
This is the prototype.